Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's 4,000. I know. And there's a waiting list. I assumed. Five years. For a bag? It's not a bag. It's a Birkin. The Hermes Birkin bag. The ultimate status symbol. Instantly recognizable. Hard to get with stunning prices ranging from 10000 to more than $300,000. And, of course, it's been the subject of more than one storyline on Sex in the City. You broke my Birkin! Sorry, mistake. <gasps> so it's no surprise that French luxury brand Hermes sued for trademark infringement when a digital artist started creating and selling Meta-Birkin NFTs. They depict digital images of the Birkin bag covered in cartoonish, colorful fur instead of leather. Is it art or a digital knockoff? The trial is the first to focus on how trademark rights will be applied to NFTs, and the outcome may have broader implications for whether NFTs are art or commercial assets. My guest is intellectual property litigator Terence Ross, a partner at Cadden Rosenman. Terry, set the stage for us about this trademark battle over the Meta-Birkin NFTs. So Hermes has put out for a decade now a type of tote bag, for lack of a better word, that they branded the Birkin. And the Birkin has literally become iconic in the fashion world. The least expensive one I could find online sold for $8,500, but most of these are far more expensive and can run over $100,000 each. It's a very high-quality bag made out of only the finest materials, including esoteric things like ostrich and crocodile. The latches are made out of palladium or gold, you know, very expensive metal. The craftsmanship is absolutely the best in the world. It's a, it's a phenomenal handbag if you can afford to spend that much for a tote bag. All the celebrities brag about them, the Kardashians, Cardi B, all have them. And so in December of 2021, Along comes a gentleman by the name of Payson Rothschild, who is involved in fashion and art and entertainment in Los Angeles. And he puts out online what he describes as Meta Birkin. And they are NFT, non-fungible token in the digital world of the metaverse. And for all practical purposes, they are a two-dimensional image of the Birkin in the form of NFTs. We embellished them in some ways tried to sell online. 
Hermes finds out about this, sends a cease and desist letter accusing him of trademark infringement. And when he refuses to comply with the cease and desist letter, Hermes files a lawsuit for trademark infringement and and other causes of action in the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. Um, This is January 2022. And a year later, here we are, beginning of February 2023, and that lawsuit is now in trial in New York City in front of a jury. Hermes claims that consumers were duped into believing that the NFTs were created or endorsed by Hermes. So this is fundamental to trademark law in the United States. Trademark law exists to protect consumers against being duped or tricked into buying goods or services under the mistaken assumption that they are um, being offered by someone other than the person actually offering. So in every trademark infringement case, it is necessary for the plaintiff, the trademark owner, to establish what we call consumer confusion. You don't have to establish that every consumer is confused, just a significant portion of them. And most courts say that's in the range of 10 to 20% of the consumers, depending on the type of good or service. And the argument here, which there seems to be some support for is that people assume that Hermes had entered the metaverse and was putting out these meta Birkins. There has been testimony that one Hermes executive was teaching a class at, I think, Columbia University in New York City, and students came up to him after the class and asked about the new Hermes line of oh. meta Birkins. And these are obviously they're Columbia University smart kids. And, you know, if they're being duped, that suggests that the broader public probably is also being duped into thinking that somehow Hermes is affiliated or associated with these Meta Birkins. Rothschild says, quote, my Meta Birkins project as a whole was an artistic experiment to explore where the value in the Birkin handbag actually lies in the handcrafted physical object or in the image it projects. So his story has changed over time. When he first put these out in December 2021, he described them as a tribute to the iconic Hermes Birkin. Apparently, after the lawsuit was filed and he got legal counsel, he started to describe the Meta Birkins as a commentary on the fashion company's mistreatment of animals and a way to own a Birkin without actually having to kill a crocodile, an ostrich, a cow whatever the particular Birkin is made out of. So the story shifted over time. And the reason for that is that the defense strategy is try to bring itself within the Rogers v. Grimaldi test, which is a tricky test, and provide the First Amendment protection against trademark infringement. And we've talked about that test before. There was a case before the Supreme Court that we discussed involving Jack Daniels and their trademark bottle. We have, June, talked about this before, and I think just in December, when the case you're referring to, which goes by the title Jack Daniels versus VIP Products, was first accepted by the Supreme Court. They granted certiorari on it. And it's one of the confusing things here. Clearly, Judge Rakoff, who's the trial judge on this case, very smart man, very good judge. He must know that the Supreme Court is considering the Rogers v. Grimaldi test. And I would have thought, indeed, if I were the judge, I would have simply stayed this lawsuit pending Supreme Court guidance on whether the Rogers test even exists anymore. And if it does exist, what are the parameters for it? When I heard about this 
I thought, who would have bought these NFTs if it was, you know, these fur-lined bags not shaped like a Birkin, but also about Andy Warhol's silkscreens of Campbell's soup cans. If this was a painting in a gallery of a Birkin handbag, you know, would there be any question that it was considered art? So, June, I can't help you with the question of who would buy these <laughs> NFTs. And it's not just the Meta Birkin. I don't understand why anyone buys any NFTs. And I understand that some of these NFTs sold for as much as an actual Birkin. So I'd rather have the handbag. Yeah, I agree with you. As for the Campbell suit, the Andy Warhol famous painting, that has been a trope that the defense has trotted out from a very early point in the case. They want to sell the notion that this is artwork and therefore an expressive work within the Rogers test that's protected by the First Amendment. That argument took a body blow in trial when uh, Judge Rakoff barred the defense's expert witness from testifying that the Meta Birkins were nothing more than the digital equivalent of Andy Warhol's Campbell Soup painting. But that, in terms of trial strategy, was a very serious blow to the defense and that they weren't going to be allowed to present this key witness and probably weren't going to be able to talk about the Campbell Soup argument. Why did Judge Rakoff make that decision? Well, the, the Supreme Court a number of years ago established uh, a very tough test for allowing expert witnesses to testify. Uh, and under that test, the district court judge, the trial judge has to determine that first, the witness is qualified in whatever field they're going to testify in. Two, that the opinion they intend to offer is um, based on solid methodology and grounded in some form of scientific approach. And third, that the results obtained by the expert in coming to opinion are replicable by other experts, because that's ultimately under science the way new theories are established and accepted in the scientific community. Somebody does the procedure reports upon it in a peer-reviewed journal. Other scientists go out, they repeat the exact procedure, and they come up with the same result that, therefore, it becomes accepted in the scientific community. And what Judge Rakoff said here is, you maybe have the qualifications and experience to offer expert testimony, but there's nothing about how you reached your opinion that's based or grounded in any scientific approach, let alone replicable by other experts. And therefore, it doesn't pass the Supreme Court test, and I cannot allow it into evidence. And I thought Judge Rakoff's decision was absolutely correct in that regard. He also said that the Hermes experts' explanation of NFTs was overcomplicated and that the jury appeared puzzled to join the crowd. He said it was far more confusing than helpful. So this is the most common criticism of trial lawyers that you get from juries and individual jurors when you interview them after the fact. I built my career on the ability to explain very complex things in very simple ways to lay people such as jurors or judges. That is unusual. The vast majority of trial lawyers in the intellectual property space seem to um, fall into the trap of over-explaining in very unnecessary detail how things work. And NFTs are fundamentally about digital source code. 
and the lawyers and the expert they put on explain this went into great detail about how we write source code and and about uh, digital coding and, and things that were really unnecessary instead of talking about NFTs in the way that most human beings talk about them <laughs> in, uh, in terms of analogies to real world objects. Um, you know, on day one of the trial, of the, of the evidence of the trial, it seemed like both sides suffered significant blows. The loss of the expert was a blow to the defense. Um, this uh, dreadful approach to testifying about explaining NFTs by uh, the plaintiff's expert was um, a mistake and, and a blow to their case. So neither side got off to a quick start in, in this trial. So, I mean, what does Hermes have to prove that it's confusing in the marketplace, that it's like, you know, the ripoff handbags that we see on the street? What exactly is, is its burden of proof here? The law, the Lanham Act is the name of the trademark law in the United States, and it prohibits anyone from, and I'm just reading here now, causing confusion or deceit as to affiliation, connection, or association, or as to origin, sponsorship, or approval of their goods or services with a trademark, uh, goods or services. And, and so you have to show that the consuming public, which I think would be someone in the luxury goods marketplace, that the consuming public would be thinking that somehow the Meta Birkin was affiliated with, connected with, associated with, sponsored by, or approved by Hermes. And so what we're going to hear a lot of is testimony on the plaintiff's side of instances in which consumers reported that sort of confusion to them. And the example of this one executive going and teaching at Columbia and being approached by students about the Hermes new Meta Birkin is a classic example of the sort of consumer confusion that's required to establish trademark infringement. And we'll just have to wait for the trial to go on to see how much more of that is. And then it'll be up to the jury to decide whether that's sufficient or not. And then there's the Rogers v. Grimaldi test, which would be a defense, even if there was consumer confusion. So if this jury believes that these NFTs are, in fact, art, then the defense would win? So let's just remember what the Rogers v. Grimaldi test is all about and remind people, even though we just did an episode in the, back in December, this was a lawsuit by Ginger Rogers, the famous 1940s dancer. Uh, against the producers of a, a movie who had titled the movie Fred and Ginger, I think was the name of Ginger referring to her, went up on appeal to Second Circuit in 1989. And they held that the use of a celebrity name in an expressive work, if artistically relevant to that expressive work and not intentionally misleading, is protected under the First Amendment against trademark infringement. And so it was a relatively narrow ruling, you know, limited to uh, celebrity names. It's been expanded beyond that to a broader range of trademarks. But again, the requirement has always been in connection with the use of that trademark in connection with an expressive work. If it's really artistically necessary to use that trademark and if it's not misleading, intentionally misleading. And. There's a lot of factual predicates there, that, and facts are determined by juries, not judges or lawyers. And so the first thing the jury's going to have to decide is whether or not the Meta Birkin is an expressive work. And that's why you see the plaintiff 
trying to push the notion that Mr. Rothschild was just out to make money here. And you see on the other side, on the defense side, the argument Mr. Rothschild is an artist and he, this was an artistic work. I mean, they want to bring it within this Rogers test and requirement established it was an expressive work and artistically relevant, not intentionally misleading. And we'll just have to see how that plays out. I mean, Judge Rakoff said on a motion to dismiss brought by the defendants that he thought Rogers v. Grimaldi applied here. I think there's a big question mark about that. The case accepted by the Supreme Court, which came out of the Ninth Circuit, is the very first case in which the Rogers test was applied to a commercial product. There, it was a dog chew toy. And other circuit courts have consistently said that Rogers test does not apply to commercial products. NFTs are really a type of commercial product. And that's why this is at the intersection of technology and art. I mean, is the NFT work of art? Is it technology? Is it a bunch of source code? I mean, what is it? And I think Judge Rickhoff may have sort of jumped the gun by saying that the Rogers test applies when I think there's a lot of factual issues about that. And I really think it's going to depend on what the Supreme Court says in the Jack Daniels case, because the Supreme Court could. One option for them is to say, hey, you know, there is no such thing as a Rogers test. That was made up by a court. That's not in the statute. Statute already has a fair use test that should be applied instead of this Rogers test. I don't know what's going to happen. That's why I think it's very curious to allow this case to go forward when it all could become moot in June. Which side do you think has the better argument? Which side would you rather be representing? I always prefer representing the side that has the money to pay me. (laughs) And I doubt Mason Rothschild has that money. He's apparently using a new law firm that I think is sort of a public interest type firm called Lex Lumina. But as far as the law and the facts, this is a case to first impression, I think it's fair to say. My gut reaction is that the Hermes side of the argument is a bit stronger. Particularly, I don't like the way that the defendant's story kept changing over time, apparently in a sort of post hoc attempt to fit itself within the Rogers test. You lawyer up and you go, oh, you know what I should have been saying all along is that this is artistically relevant. This is an expressive work. I'm not just trying to make money. I mean, they, they seem to be trying to force fit this into the Rogers test. And I'm not so sure that it fits, quite frankly. I mean, you asked the, the question though, very right? well, June. I think, who would buy this? If it didn't have the Birkin name on it, if these were just called handbags, would any consumer actually buy these? I mean, isn't it the association with the Birkin iconic handbag that makes it purchasable and people interested in it? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. This case could be a game changer, right? This is a really important case to trademark law. As the metaverse expands and more companies move into it, and we've heard a lot of testimony already that Hermes has plans to move into the metaverse, and therefore this would directly impact their ability to do that. We need to probably update the Lanham Act to really address this sort of issue. Uh, You're absolutely right, June. It it is a cutting-edge case, and it will be just the first of many, I think, we're going to see in this field. We'll keep track of what happens here, and That Jack Daniels case is going to be heard by the Supreme Court on March 22nd. So maybe we'll learn more about their take on the Rogers test at that point. Thanks so much, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Republican state attorneys general are trying to kill a climate-friendly retirement investment rule they deride as woke. More than two dozen states are suing to block the rule, which permits private sector employers to consider environmental, social, and corporate governance factors when choosing pension investments. And the U.S. Labor Department is facing litigation deja vu because it has to defend its rule in a conservative Texas jurisdiction known for striking down consequential employee benefit regulations. Will history repeat itself? Joining me to answer that question is Josh Lichtenstein, partner and head of the ERISA fiduciary practice at Ropes and Gray. So, Josh, tell us about this rule that's being challenged. The rule that we're talking about here. It's often referred to as an ESG investing rule, but it's really broader than that. This is actually a rule that governs the way that fiduciaries to ERISA plans, and that's both the traditional defined benefit pension plans and defined contribution plans like a 401k plan. It's the rule that governs the way that fiduciaries to those plans make all of their investment decisions. And so the rule will cover how plan fiduciaries select a particular fund that they either want to invest assets in or want to make available to 401k participants. And it goes to how they are supposed to determine what criteria are relevant in selecting those funds and then how they're supposed to weight those criteria. And while people are generally thinking about this in terms of whether a plan sponsor can use ESG factors as part of their investment decision or not. It's really much broader than that, and it goes to every financial or potentially financial factor that might be utilized by a plan fiduciary. So Texas and other Republican-led states are suing. What are their allegations? What's their cause of action, basically? It's very interesting, right? You know, and I think that this is important to sort of be clear about because there are a lot of headlines about you know various of these states, including Texas, having passed laws that govern how their own retirement plans get invested. And generally speaking, you know, these laws are limiting the ability to use ESG considerations for investment purposes, or are you know restricting the state pensions from investing with certain asset managers based on 
levels of participation in certain industries like the fossil fuels industry. But the Department of Labor's rule does not actually impact those government plans that are making all of these headlines. The Department of Labor's rule only impacts private pension plans. So these are pension plans that are either maintained by a private employer or that are maintained by a union that covers employees as private employers. So it's not obvious necessarily, you know, why it would be the states that would want to bring a lawsuit like this because it doesn't directly impact their plans. You know, what the states are claiming at heart as the basis for why they should be able to sue is an alleged detrimental impact on residents of the state and on the tax receipts of the state. But there are also some private plaintiffs, you know, that are part of the suit. And their standing might be somewhat more obvious as a plan sponsor, you know, alleging that there'll be, um, you know, more work and more costs associated with running their plan under the rule of plan participants and energy company. But at heart, what all of these allegations really are about, they're basically allegations that the rule put forward by the Biden administration's Department of Labor will have the effect of devoting more retirement assets towards ESG goals and away from the fossil fuels industry and certain other sectors and that that will have a detrimental impact on the states that are joining this letter and that it would be sort of an inappropriate use of retirement assets to pursue non-retirement related goals. I know I started this answer by saying that the DOL's rule does not govern the state plans, and that's correct. Like, it does not govern them, but it's interesting. The state laws that govern the state pension plans are all modeled on the federal law. They're all modeled on ERISA. And so the Biden administration and many of these states that are involved in this lawsuit have actually themselves come to very different interpretations of the same statutory language around fiduciary standards. And so you know, sort of separate and apart from the question about the interest that the states have in directly bringing this lawsuit, there's sort of a secondary question of who really has the right interpretation of this statutory language when you have multiple government bodies, you know, at the state and federal level interpreting the same language. That brings up a couple of things. The Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, said that this kind of investing puts hardworking Americans' retirement savings at risk. The rule reverses restrictions on socially conscious investing that were adopted by the Trump administration. Can you compare the rules for us? You know, I find the allegations in the complaint to be somewhat opposite to what my read of the actual rule is. Because the allegations of the complaint are basically that the Department of Labor's current rule will have the effect of um, making it more difficult and more costly for plan sponsors to have to evaluate different investment options and that it will have the effect of driving more assets into ESG-type funds. But I think that the reality is that the Biden administration's rule is very neutral. I actually think it's the most neutral version of this guidance that we have seen from the Department of Labor. And the Department of Labor has been putting guidance out on this topic for decades. 
literally for decades. It may have the longest history of any U.S. regulator regulating these ESG-type investment decisions. And the guidance has gone back and forth over time as administrations have changed. But you know, there's sort of core principles that have been in the guidance from the start have really been that fiduciaries are supposed to invest solely based on what's in the best interest of the plan participants and that you know they're only supposed to consider sort of non-economic collateral factors like the positive externality or the social good created by ESG investing in very limited circumstances where the fiduciary otherwise can't choose between two different investment options. And so rather than flipping a coin to choose which of the two, they can select um, the investment option actually considering those non-economic considerations like the positive externalities. And that's what the guidance has said uh, with varying levels of emphasis for years. The Trump administration rule came out a little bit different because the Trump administration rule, both the proposed rule and then also the final rule uh, was viewed as being very, very restrictive on the ability to consider ESG factors as pure economic factors. And so that was really the reason why the Trump administration rule was having such an impact on the market and why it was causing plan sponsors so much angst and worry, because it made them worry that entire classes of economic data could be prohibited from being part of their decision space because the Trump administration rule was so skeptical of the ability for ESG factors to be economic considerations. And that's really strange because if you look at institutional investors' behavior more broadly in the market, it's just become very common practice, as I understand it, to incorporate ESG data the same way that other financial data is incorporated as just a means of assessing different types of risk. And so, but the Trump administration rule, you know, one of the fears that people had was that the rule was basically going to force pension plans from being able to invest into mainstream, like not, you know, ESG impact funds, just sort of mainstream investment funds, which were incorporating ESG risk factors as part of their economic analysis, the same way that they consider any other risk factor. So when you see the attorney general saying that, that this is going to create extra risk or be harmful to plan participants, to me, that doesn't really ring true. Because based on my understanding, in almost every case, you know, where a plan sponsor or plan fiduciary is going to be considering ESG factors as part of their investment process, it's because they're just behaving the same way that other similarly situated institutional investors would behave in you know, considering the full range of economic criteria. And the other thing that I think is interesting is that you know, even within these states, right, like Texas state plans have themselves you know, adopted ESG considerations as part of their own risk evaluation framework. And there are questions now under state law about whether they're allowed to really do that or not. But it's just a very accepted part of institutional investing that you would consider ESG risk factors like you'd consider other risk factors. We've seen the state of Texas and other Republican-led states bring all kinds of suits against the Biden administration everything from immigration to health care issues. So what do you think the real reason is for bringing this suit? Well, I mean, it's impossible to get inside of people's heads and know exactly why they're bringing it, right? 
But I think it's hard to ignore the political dimension here. ESG has obviously become a very political topic. I also think that part of it may be that, as I was saying before, you know, a lot of these states have adopted or are adopting their own ESG restrictive views of investing for their state retirement plans. And because the states are operating under the same statutory language as the federal government is here, the fact that the Biden administration's rule has a very different interpretation of the way that fiduciary duties should be discharged when making investments, you know, because the Biden administration's rule is basically permits plan fiduciaries to choose any factor that they think is an important financial factor in their considerations. And a lot of these state rules are restricting consideration of ESG even where it would be a financial factor or are very skeptical of the ability of ESG to be a financial factor. So I think that there may be a motivation here from these states that if they're either able to get the Biden rule knocked down or even if they're just able to sort of put the argument out there into the world, that their interpretations are also sort of valid or consistent with historical interpretations of these standards, notwithstanding that they differ so much from the Biden administration rule. Now, we could talk about the accuracy of the account that the complaint gives of sort of historic interpretations of the rule, and I'm not really sure that it gets it right, to be frank. But I think that that may be part of what the motivation is here, that the states are trying to protect their own somewhat radical interpretations of the statutory language by challenging the Biden administration's more traditional interpretation of the statutory language. This lawsuit is going to be heard by federal judge Matthew Kismarik, and he's a Trump appointee who struck down Biden administration rules on immigration and health care protections for LGBT people. I mean, we've seen the fact that the Texas AG, they file in a friendly venue, just as the Democratic AGs would file in a friendly venue under Trump. So how likely is it that this judge will issue an injunction blocking the rule? I can't speak to how likely they are to issue an injunction, but I I agree with you. They've selected a very friendly venue. And I wouldn't be taking this lawsuit as seriously as a threat to the rule if it were in a less friendly jurisdiction, because I really do think that the Biden administration rule is very sort of neutral and that the arguments put forward in the complaint about it driving more assets towards ESG are incorrect. But I do think that the fact that it's in front of this judge and the fact that it's you know within the Fifth Circuit and any decision winds up being appealed is going to wind up in front of the Fifth Circuit. I think that, that does create a greater risk of an adverse finding for the Department of Labor than if it was in another court. And you know I always come back to you know this division of the Department of Labor that's responsible for retirement. It had you know an expansive rulemaking on the definition of a fiduciary under ERISA, and that was struck down by the Fifth Circuit back in 2016. And that was a pretty surprising decision to a lot of people because irrespective of what somebody might have thought of the merits of the rule, the Department of Labor had gone through what seemed like a very painstaking process. And despite that very painstaking process, the rule was found to be arbitrary and capricious. And so here, again, I think that the administration has gone through an extensive process. If anything, people were wondering what was taking them so long to come out with the final rule. 
because there was a long time that elapsed between the end of the comment period on the proposal and when the final rule came out. But, you know, it all just goes to the rigor of the process and consideration of the comments that came in. But, you know, I, I think it's very, very hard to predict how how this particular court and how the Fifth Circuit also on, on appeal will react to, to these types of arguments. I will say, though, that if the DOL's current rule is struck down by a court on the basis of the process that they went through, then I wouldn't necessarily expect the result of that to be that we wind up back at the Trump administration's rule, because I would expect the Trump administration's rule, if that was then you know put back into place, to be challenged itself on similar grounds. And I would expect that any claims that the Trump administration rule you know didn't go through an appropriate process would be much stronger than arguments that the Biden administration didn't go through an appropriate process, because the Trump administration had very short comment periods and a much faster turnaround time between the close of the comment period on the proposed rule and when they came out with the final rule. And the Trump administration's final rule was very different from their proposed rule. And they had had to respond to a much larger number of individual comment letters, which themselves were starkly sort of negative and disapproving of the Trump administration rule. So I think that if the Biden administration rule is struck down, then the ultimate outcome might be a reversion to the prior law. And then again, I would probably expect that we'd wind up with a rule that still remains sort of neutral, not anti-ESG consideration like the Trump administration rule was. So how much of a setback would it be for the Biden administration if there was an injunction issued against this rule? Would it be a great setback? I mean, I think it, it would be a pretty significant setback in my mind because you know, the Department of Labor put a lot of resources into this rule, you know, similar to how they put a lot of resources into the prior fiduciary rule, which was struck down. The, the agency has limited resources, right? They have a limited number of employees, and they have a lot of responsibilities. They have a lot of rules they need to put out, and they oversee something very important, right? They oversee private retirement in America, which is critically important. So, you know, I think that the loss of the time that they put into this rule, plus the need to devote more resources, would be a, a real setback. I'll also say, though, I think that it would be very unfortunate for pretty much every stakeholder if the rule was struck down, because I really do believe that the Biden administration rule gets it right in a way that administrations, both Democrat and Republican, have failed to do so in the past, because it's so neutral. It makes it so abundantly clear in my mind that plan fiduciaries are supposed to be able just to choose what they think is appropriate in making their investment decisions. I think that's the right rule. I think that's the way things are supposed to be, that the regulators shouldn't be putting a thumb on the scale for or against any particular set of economic considerations and should let the plan fiduciaries make their choices. So, yeah, I think it would be a pretty big setback, not just to the administration, but to plan sponsors, retirement savers, asset managers, consultants, really everybody, if the rule was to be struck down. I'll also just say, you know, as another note on that point, that while the Trump administration rule was sort of wildly unpopular among basically every constituency, we had consumer advocates, trade organizations representing the, the asset management industry, and plan sponsors all lining up together to say that the Trump administration rule was a harmful rule in a lot of ways. And it had a negative impact on the market, a chilling effect is the language that people use. The Biden rule, the only detractors I'm aware of, really, of this rule are elected Republican officials. I'm really not aware 
of any market participants or plan sponsors who are unhappy with this rule. I think it's noteworthy that when they were gathering private plaintiffs for this claim, they only just one plan sponsor and not like one of the most noteworthy plan sponsors in America or anything. So I think from my perspective, I think that having a settled neutral rule benefits everybody and creating more chaos in the space only hurts retirees. Thanks for being on the show, Josh. That's Josh Lichtenstein, a partner in Ropes and Gray. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.